I invite you to take your copy of God's Word and open to John chapter 20. As we consider the very subject that is on the minds of everyone, but ought to be really on the minds of everyone every Lord's Day. We worship on the Lord's Day because of the resurrection. We glory in Christ's presence because of the resurrection. Without the resurrection, we would have no means by which we could even worship the triune God. We're going to be reading from John chapter 20. I'm going to read the first 23 verses of this, uh, of this chapter. John chapter 20, beginning with verse 1, reading through verse 23. I know it's a lengthy section, so let's give diligent, diligent attention to this, the very word of the living God. John 20, beginning with verse 1. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloth lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloth lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloth, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in. And he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried, away, carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to, my, to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. And the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Amen. This is the word of the living God. Let's pause and ask for the Spirit's help, as you always should do whenever you consider any portion of God's word. Let's pray. Our Father, now as we humble ourselves before this, the all-searching eyes and words of this your word. We know and confess to you that you have given it to us that we might learn, that we might behold your glory, that we might see it as a lamp unto our feet, but we are powerless without your spirit. And so we would ask that you would remember the very promise you gave to us, that as we ask for your spirit to teach us and guide us, you have promised to grant him to us. And so may you do that even now. Through this, the ordinary and simple and primary means of grace, through the preached word, may we behold the very comfort 
that the resurrected Lord gives to his people, we ask for Christ's sake. Amen. It was on February 27th, 1991, during the Desert Storm War, that a woman by the name of Ruth Dillow received what is undoubtedly the worst call of her life. Her son, Clayton Carpenter, a private first class in the United States Army, had stepped on a landmine and was dead. For the next three days, she grieved. No one could comfort her. On the third day after receiving the terrible news, the phone rang. On the other end of the phone, there was a voice that said, Mom, it's me. I'm alive. At first, she thought it was a cruel joke. But as the conversation continued, she realized it was her son. Later, she said she laughed and cried and rejoiced because what seemed to be a hopeless situation turned out to be the greatest day of her life. In much the same way in this passage, and failing in many ways uh, to the very events of this passage, we have this issue. We have people represented by the disciples there hiding out in the upper room for fear of the Jews and languishing under their own self-pity and worry about what was to happen, not understanding what Jesus had told them time and time again, worried and concerned, distraught even. We have another set of people represented by Mary Magdalene, a woman who was weeping because she could not figure out what had happened to her Lord. She had seen him crucified. She had seen him die. She had seen him placed in this borrowed grave. And now she is hopeless as to where he has gone. Everything seems to be falling apart in the lives of these two camps of people. But what we must see and we must recognize, even as this woman saw and recognized when she received that phone call that her, and heard the very voice of her own son on the other side of the phone, is that the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ is designed to bring hope to a troubled people. It is designed to bring comfort and it is designed to bring encouragement to sinners. Now, when you think about the resurrection, and I suspect you've been thinking about the res resurrection all the way through this worship service, and I hope you have been. But I suspect also that you should be thinking about the resurrection every Lord's Day. In fact, you should be thinking about the resurrection every day. But when you think of it, when it comes to mind in your life, when you think of this event that comes to you through the lens of God's word, what thoughts go through your head? What do you see it as? Do, do you recognize it as, as a, a great comfort, and that which communicates great hope to sinners? Do you understand even the very benefits that are offered to you through this triumphant amen of God the Father after his son proclaimed on the cross it is finished? He that completed the work of his son, he will surely complete that work in you. He that accomplished the work in his own son will certainly complete that very work in those that his son came to die for. You see, my friends, the resurrection story, and I'm somewhat loath to use that word, but the resurrection account, the events of the resurrection are not merely a theological statement. And if we only see it as a theological statement and we don't garner the hope and comfort that it brings to a beleaguered people living in the world in the 21st century, we will miss the whole point of the resurrection entirely. We must not only see it as a theological point of doctrine that is necessary to our historic Christian faith, even as we have confessed. We must see it as this practical element in the life of Christians. Without the resurrection... Hear me, without the resurrection, we might as well shut the doors of the church and go do something else. We might as well go on about our lives and use our Sundays for other things. Without the resurrection and all of the hope that it communicates, 
we might as well not bother doing what we're doing even this very moment. You see, without the resurrection, you would be a people without hope. None. A people to be pitied. A people with absolutely no hope in the world. You see, in the context of the resurrection, we have which precedes it, of course. You know your Bibles. We have the crucifixion. A little difficult to have a resurrection if there's not a death. Jesus has died. He has offered his life a ransom for many. He gave up the ghost, the King James says. He gave his life away. No man took it. He is dead. And in the face of that abject misery that the Lord Jesus Christ went on on that cross, his disciples, his friends, the vast majority of them had departed. They had run away. They had deserted him. Strike the sheep and the people will be scattered. And that's exactly what happened. They had run away, despondent, despairing, frustrated, concerned, grieving. All of the emotions that we choose to set aside and not think about too often, they are experiencing. They're not worried about some theological point of doctrine. They are recognizing that they are people that are hopeless if he is dead. This one who said he is the savior of sinners, who came to rescue people from their sin, is dead. How can that be possible if he is dead? So they are hurting and they are struggling. They are worried and concerned, fearful even. All of the things that we too are like, even as we live in this world today. Worried about events of our culture. Worried about circumstances that we see going on in the news and in our country. Things that are happening within the lives of our own churches. All of it is part and parcel of the kinds of emotions that these people are feeling. And if you don't enter into the weight of these emotions that these individuals in John 20 are feeling, you will miss the whole hope and comfort that that empty tomb brings to them and should bring to you and to me. So I want to show you this morning that this text is teaching us, that the Spirit of God is teaching us. He's teaching us many things. But I'm going to zero in on pretty much one area. I'm going to show you that the morning of Christ's death, that is the morning, M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G, the morning of Christ's death quickly turns to gladness through the proof of the empty tomb and the comforting care of the risen Lord. I want to show you that the mourning, the, the abject misery that these people are under, the weight that they are under, quickly turns to gladness, as it should for us, through the proof of the empty tomb, the proof of it, and the comforting care, personal, intimate care of the risen Lord. We're going to see this in uh, two points uh, this morning. First, we're going to consider the concern of the people. In order for us to get to the care of the Savior and all that he does personally for them, we have to consider the concern that they are under. And then we will consider the care of the Savior. The concern of the people. What is it that concerns them? And how then does Jesus care for them. Let's first consider the concern of the people. The concern of the people. Mark, I'm sorry, I'm preaching in Mark and at Providence, so I'll probably make that mistake more than once. John tells us in John 20, the very first verse, he sets the stage for us, doesn't he? He comes right out of the gate and tells us now on the first day of the week. That is what we know, of course, as Sunday, which I would prefer and I do prefer in my own vocabulary to say the Lord's Day, because that's what this is. It's the Lord's Day. One of the reasons why we gather as God's people on this day, not on Thursday or Saturday, is because of the resurrection. From the beginning of the world to the resurrection of Christ, God's people gathered on the sixth day or the seventh day of the week. And now because of the resurrection, which communicates hope and comfort and that which to come, we gather on the very first day of the week. All the accounts in the gospels highlight this truth. 
That ought to get our attention. That the writers, the gospel writers don't just merely mention a day or launch into the subject of the resurrection. They mention the first day of the week on purpose. That we as God's people now might get, that the Spirit might get our attention that the day of worship has changed, has been refocused into the very first day of the week because of the very resurrection of Christ. This is the day that this is happening. What is the occasion? What prompted this visit to the tomb? Why, why would this woman there, Mary Magdalene, verse 1, come to the tomb? Notice she gets there early. She didn't wait around. She didn't, wasn't much of a procrastinator. Apparently, she was a morning person. She gets there early while it was still dark even. She goes to the tomb. Why? Because she loved her Lord. Why else do you go to a tomb? Now, I have never visited a tomb of a person I didn't love, to be perfectly honest. Maybe I should. I don't. I haven't. Mary Magdalene loved the Lord Jesus Christ. He, she wanted to visit this tomb. There was something about just visiting the tomb that would bring comfort to her. And so she goes because her Lord, her friend, that she has heard from for quite a while, has just been killed, just died. On the very first day of the week, she goes to see her Savior there. Early in the morning, the text tells us. Still dark. In eagerness. In eagerness. Being displayed by this woman. If I can just get to the tomb. Even that stone that's in front of it will bring me some hope and comfort. If I can just get there in some way. I'm going to get there early. I'm not waiting around until noon or until I've had breakfast. I'm going early. There's an eagerness for, him, for her to come and even see the Savior as it were. Maybe I'm stretching this just a little bit, but I don't think so. When we come to worship on the Lord's Day, I know Providence worships at 2 o'clock in the afternoon by, by, well, Providence. You worship in, you at, at, you worship in the morning. But in either case, what difference does it make? When you come to worship, you come to see the risen Lord. This woman has yet met the risen Lord. She's going to in a minute, but she's coming because she is eager. She has an expectation. She has some excited mentality and motivation to come and meet with him. Do you come into this place like that? When you come to worship him, do you come with eager expectation? Do you come with eagerness and diligence? Mary Magdalene puts a lot of Christians to shame, frankly. Early in the morning, on the first day of the week, the day of worship, she goes to a tomb. You don't. You see, my friends, you don't come to a tomb. You come to a risen Lord. How much more than therefore should you be eager? She doesn't know what awaits her yet. She has no idea what's just happened. But she's still eager to get there, isn't she? How much more you and I Every time we come into this place, should be eager, eager, hungry to meet with the risen Lord of glory. Well, it's the first day of the week. The occasion, of course, is the death of Christ. There's an eagerness about this woman who's involved in the narrative. It's always good as you read your Bible and study it to identify the people, the places, the names, you know, those kinds of key factual items. If you want to rightly understand things. Who's the people? Well, I've already mentioned Mary Magdalene. Who's this woman? Now, this woman, I mean, she's not exactly a stellar person, as it were. Mom and dad, if your daughter was hanging out with, or if your son was hanging out with Mary Magdalene, I don't think you'd be very happy about it. She had seven demons at one time. Jesus cleansed her. Maybe giving some insight into the endearing nature of Christ to her. We know that after that event, that she was a committed and devoted follower of Christ. She was even part of the inner circle, witnessing even the crucifixion, death, and burial of the Savior. She had an intimate knowledge of Christ. She had an awareness and understanding of Him. Maybe in better ways than disciples sometimes. I don't know. But then there this curious statement that John makes that others are also there at the tomb. 
He doesn't name them. He doesn't tell us who they are. There's likely four other people in total, but maybe more. We note that from the very use of the plural pronoun there in in verse 2. And so, as we note, it's not just Mary that's coming to the tomb. It's these other people as well. The other Mary, the mother of James or Salome or, or Joanna. There's an eagerness in this group to come to the tomb. Now, why? Why does this happen? What's the whole purpose? He doesn't tell us all the purposes and the ins and outs and everything that's going on in the minds of these people. That's not his purpose. He could have spent a great length of time, not unlike my sermons, unpacking infinitesimal details as to what motivates and moves and causes these people to do what they do. But that's not what he does. Why? Because his singular purpose is to show the people of God, to show you and me this morning the empty tomb. That's a singular purpose. He wants to make it very clear that we do not miss the forest for the trees. That we see the very tomb empty. That's his purpose. We, don't, we do know that the women, the women, some of the women came to anoint the body as a sign of devotion and affection. Much like we do when we go to a, a, to a, a grave marker in a cemetery with a loved one or a friend and we bring flowers. It's not like they know that you did that. But you do it out of devotion. You do it out of affection. You do it out of concern and love and an expression of that love, even though they have no knowledge of it. This could be why they are doing this. But it demonstrates at least one thing from these people. It demonstrates that they had a great love for the Savior. But it also highlights for us the despair and grief that they are under. They are brokenhearted. They are brokenhearted at the death of their, of their Lord. Some of you maybe have experienced that. Some of you maybe recently have experienced that. Some of you maybe are facing that in the very near future. It brings a brokenness. It brings a heavy-heartedness when a friend dies, a loved one dies. God forbid a child dies. They are brokenhearted. They feel it. It's not an abstract thought in their head. It's an emotion that they carry as they approach this tomb to do the work that they are there to do. As they get to the tomb, verse 11, Mary there, she's outside of it weeping. She goes to look inside the tomb. What is she expecting to see? What any person would expect to see. I've done enough funerals in my life to know that if I look into a casket, there's probably a body there. She's expecting to see a body. Imagine her reaction. She's seen him buried. She's seen him put in the tomb. She's taken note of all of these truths. She's there to basically give flowers at the tomb. And it's opened. She was already anxious. They, the people, the women there were already anxious as to how they were going to move the stone from the front of the tomb. Mark 16, 3 even tells us that. How is it they're going to do this work even as they approach this place? They assumed that the body of the Lord would be in the very tomb that they had witnessed him put into. It hasn't even crossed their mind that something could have happened. Not at all. It does, and it causes great alarm. John tells us that when they saw the, two, the, the stone rolled away uh, there, uh, they, uh, they, they, they run to Peter, the other disciples. 
and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb. We do not know where they have laid him. That's their reaction. There's an anxiousness. An anxiety is building. Multiple times in John 20, we hear that same refrain. Tell me where he is so I can go take his body. Tell me where you have laid him. Tell me where you put him. There's an attitude of anxiety that is building in the lives and minds of especially Mary Magdalene. They're so anxious that they run to the disciples. Not that they would have been very much help. We noted that from uh, the Matthew accounts that when they heard of this whole event, they were like, yeah, right, sure. Some tale, some story you just made up. It's not crossed their mind at all that something miraculous has just occurred. And so as they run to Peter and John, they proclaim they have taken the Lord out of the tomb. We don't know where they have laid him. They are in distress. They want an answer. They need relief. They're miserable. And they won't be satisfied until they are able to resolve it. It will be resolved in ways they never expected. They should have. Because Jesus plainly taught about it. There is anxious moments in the lives of these women. They had an understandable curiosity. You get to a tomb that you expect to be a tomb, and it's not a tomb, it's open, the grave. And we don't see that in our world today. In those days, they oftentimes would bury people in the sides of mountains or hills. The stone is rolled in front of it. And when they get there, it's not. Wouldn't you be curious? You may not be like Peter, who just rushes right in there. You know about how Peter was. You might have been like John, you know, creeping around the corner, like, not really sure what's up, but I'm not going in there either. They're curious. They look, they see, but they don't see what they expect to see. They have a dilemma. They shouldn't have had the dilemma. They were plainly told that Jesus would raise, be raised. But they're perplexed. They investigate. Even Peter and John investigate into this tomb that should be sealed, but it's not. And then they believe. A belief that's still weak, but that one is beginning to understand. John even tells us as much, if I can remember the verse, because I didn't put it in my outline, but, well, I'll just do it from memory. But be that as it may, they remembered, even in Matthew's account, as Peter goes to that tomb, he is reminded in some way. He goes to the tomb disbelieving, walks away believing. But all of it's a mystery. All of it's bringing discouragement and despair. All that's bringing bewilderment and confusion. And in the face of that time and period of emotional distress, we see the very personal care of the Lord Jesus Christ. Not just for the women, but also for his disciples. We have here in this care that these two specific encounters as presented by John, we have highlighted the risen Lord's care for his people. You see, it's easy to get to lose sight of the fact that the risen Lord is still caring for his church. He cared for these people here, and he cares for you and me now today. He hasn't stopped doing that. That's what the risen Lord does we don't want to get lost with the idea of the empty tomb and miss the one who came out of it. These first eyewitnesses to the resurrection, the first is to a woman and the second to the disciples. Embedded in these events is not merely John's attempt to prove the validity of the resurrection, but to show the comfort the empty tomb and the risen Lord brings to hurting people. First, there's personal care. Personal care. Intimate care. We have first highlighted by the angelic encounter in the text. 
After John and Peter depart, Mary Magdalene, she remains, and she's distraught. She's weeping. It's pretty clear. Not only once is it told, but more than once. She's even asked, why are you weeping? She's not just shedding a random tear down her cheek. She is profusely crying about the events that are in front of her as she's perplexed and burdened with great weight. She is distraught. She looks into the tomb, probably for the first time. She sees two angels. That ought enough to scare you right out of your socks. That's not something we see every day. She didn't. Two angels, one at the head and one at the foot. And they ask her, why, why are you weeping? As if they didn't know the reason. And I suspect they asked this question to flesh out of her some kind of answer. So they say, verse 13, woman, why are you weeping? She responds to them, they have taken away my Lord and I do not know where they have laid him. Not the first time she said this. She's still confused. She's still distraught, doesn't understand what's going on. She doesn't know the Lord's been resurrected. I suspect the reason the angels asked this question is to prompt out of her a love for the Savior himself. Notice the construction of Mary's answer. They have taken away the Lord, and I don't know where they have laid him. Look again. That's not what it says. It says they have taken away my Lord. There is a personal affection that is being generated by the question of the angels is provoked out of her in, in her grief and in her, in her distraught nature. She proclaims to them her personal love for Christ. They have taken away my Lord. Not the disciples' Lord. Not the other Mary's Lord. My Lord. This whole personal care of Christ is beginning to build first through the angels, but then now through himself. The resurrected Christ. Notice what happens. They have taken away my Lord, she says. I don't know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there. There he is. Full living color. Nail print still in his hands, his feet, and the spear mark in his side. There he is. And her observation is what? It's a gardener. Just a gardener. And she engages him in discussion. And she says to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. It's not unusual the various passages on the resurrection for the Savior to veil himself, at least temporarily, before people. You remember the story of the disciples on the road to Emmaus there where he basically preached himself from the entire Old Testament and their hearts burned as they heard and listened to the greatest sermon ever. They didn't know who he was. Mary has yet to recognize him. Many reasons have been offered as to why. You would think that she would. It wasn't as though he had a different body or a different appearance. He looked the same as he looked when he was on earth and when he was living and ministering among them. Many reasons have been offered as to why she did not readily recognize him. One of them is that maybe she just couldn't see clearly because of all the tears. I don't know. We're not told why. We do know that she did not recognize him. She thinks he's a gardener. Verse 16, Jesus says to her again. Now Jesus is there. He speaks again to her and says to her, and this is important. He says, Mary. Mary. He calls her by name. It's not some general statement. You there, woman. Hey, lady, Mrs. So-and-so. No, he calls her by name. 
You know, the sheep hear the voice of the shepherd. They know that voice. And when he invokes her name there, look how she responds. She immediately knows who he is. This personal, intimate care of the risen Lord outside of the empty tomb, there in that place, in the shadow of the tomb even, the Savior speaks to her. He calls her by name. Every one of you that know the Lord Jesus Christ today were called by name, by him. You may not have heard a voice as Mary did, but you were called nonetheless, and you were called by name. When Jesus Christ went to the cross to lay down his life, a ransom for many, he went down to lay down his life, a ransom for you, by name. Your name was written on his heart. It was personal to him. And his concern for Mary was personal to him. He wanted to relieve her of her distress, of her discomfort, of her agony, her anguish. He calls her by name. How much more personal can one be? He takes the time to bear up under her misunderstanding that he's a gardener and says, Mary. And she responds. He identifies Mary. Identifies Mary as a child of the Father in heaven. He says this to her, Mary, she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father, your Father, to my God and your God. Note that the pronouns are important. My Father and your Father. Jesus is saying to her, Mary, not only do I desire to help you, but you belong to me. You are mine. And much in a great sense here, we have the glorious doctrine of adoption being highlighted for us. This is a daughter of the covenant. This is a daughter of the Most High. A true child of the faith who Jesus Christ is seeking to help and minister to. He identifies her by name. He identifies her as a child of the Father in heaven. Her anguish is slowly turning to comfort and hope. And then he commands her, doesn't he? Go and tell my disciples. Go tell my brothers what you have just witnessed. Go talk to them. Go tell of them. Go tell to them what you have just experienced here. Go say, I have seen the Lord. I have seen him. My own eyes. All that was dark and miserable in my soul, all the weight and agony that I was experiencing has been relieved, it's been removed, it's been lifted because I have seen the risen King. I have seen the Lord of glory. And he goes, I mean, she goes, doesn't he? Doesn't she? She doesn't argue. She doesn't say, let me hang around here and keep holding on to you. Let me, let me, let, let's sit around and have tea. Let, let's, just, let, let's just enjoy the moment. No. She goes in humble obedience to what her Lord told her to do. Here we have what we know as just fruits that are born out of anyone who is a child of God. Here they're here this morning. You profess faith in Christ. You say, I'm a Christian. You say a lot. We say a lot of things. Are you obedient? Are you obedient to the Savior? Mary was. She was obedient to him. He's her Lord. He's, she belongs to, her, to his Father and her Father in heaven. And as a result of those truths that were ingrained in her soul, she obediently goes to spread the comfort of the good news that I've seen the risen Lord. And frankly, my friends, that's what we should be doing. 
and we don't? What is it that stops us as Christians from being like Mary to telling people of the Lord Jesus Christ to bring comfort and hope? They're not going to find it anyplace else. She goes to minister hope to the disciples. They too, who are under the same weight and burden that she personally was experiencing, she has been relieved of her distress. And perhaps the Lord would have you go. I don't mean to the mission field necessarily, but maybe. But there's a mission field that's right outside these walls. A lot of dying and hurting people living next door to you. A lot of dying and hurting people that can tell you the Easter story but have absolutely no hope in it whatsoever. Are you like Mary? Will you not tell them? Oh, they're not going to like me very much. Probably. Oh, they're going to call me names. Probably. Leave that to the Lord. He's got that covered. The profession of faith leads to obedience. And part of being obedient to the Savior is to tell others about him. But there's also a corporate care. There's not just a personal care that's shown up in how Jesus interacts with Mary to help her. There's a corporate care that the Savior offers to his disciples. They're less believing than Mary. Again, it's evening on the first day of the week. Mark tells us that, verse 19. The door's being locked where the disciples were. Why? Because, well, you know, that's what we do. We lock our doors. No, they were afraid. They were afraid of the Jews. And in John's gospel, the Jews are usually represented as the opponents of Jesus. That's how John usually represents them. They're afraid. They're going to get taken off too and crucified because they were in league with this insurrectionist, not insurrectionist. And in this moment, as they're behind a locked door, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. In some sense, and Sinclair Ferguson, I think, is the first one I've ever heard say this. And if you don't know who he is, ask your pastor, both churches, ask your pastor later and he'll tell you. And in some sense, according to at least Sinclair Ferguson, this is the first worship service, evening worship service in the New Testament. You have there a corporate gathering of God's people and the 11 disciples, and you have Jesus standing in their midst, which is precisely what he's doing right now, by the way. He's here. Well, that was free. What well, is the place this happens? In a room, a, a locked room, because they're chicken. Understandably so, but they're still afraid. And before you start thinking, oh, I wouldn't have done that. Yes, you would have. Maybe worse, two locks. And it's there in their fear, in their distress, that the Savior comes to offer hope to them, a comfort. The very first words that he speaks to them are given to us in the text that he tells them to peace be with you. The very opposite of fear, the opposite of nervousness, the opposite of anxiety is peacefulness. Undoubtedly, it probably startled them. The doors are locked. How did you get in? He comes and he pronounces peace on them. And then he shows them his wounds to prove this is not a figment of your imagination. It wasn't because you had bad pizza and indigestion the night before. And you're really not seeing me. I am who you walked with for all those years. I am the one you saw crucified. I am alive. See my wounds. See them. Witness them with their own eyes. Why? Because the disciples had weak faith. Ask yourself, why did the Lord give us the Lord's Supper? Because we have weak faith. We have to touch things and hold things and smell things in order to believe. Jesus meets their need of anguish and misery by showing them his wounds. That they might believe. That they might have relief from what ailed them. And how do they respond? Like you would have with great joy and gladness. What they feared, a dead Savior and a mystery for the ages, as to where his body was taken, has been resolved. 
Peter and John saw the empty tomb, couldn't explain it. Now locked behind a door, all that was bothering them has been answered. He's alive. I've touched him. I've seen the wounds. I've heard his voice. There's a joy and gladness, and then there's a worship that occurs. Note that from Matthew 28. As they gathered and worshipped him. But like Mary also, there's an obedience too. It's not just a profession of faith and joy and gladness with no foundation. That, that visible, the visible wounds of the Savior moved them to obey out of love for him. He tells them to go. I'm sending you. Go speak hope and comfort into others. Is that not what the apostles did? You have the Christian faith this morning, my friends, because they heard Jesus' voice in this room and did exactly what he told them to do. Had they decided, ah, I'm good. You might not be here even today. The comfort of the resurrection. It's a theological fact, and while that is true, It has significant practical benefits for God's people, even today. You see, my friends, it's not a period in the life of the Savior. It's not a period. It's a triumphal amen. It's an exclamation point to the very promise that God made in Genesis 3 that through the seed of the woman, he would bring forth a Redeemer that would save his people from their sin and live evermore for them, mediating and ministering to them. It is a triumphal amen to the Savior's words of, it is finished. No, it's more than theology. It's practical in every way because it gives to us and only us the hope of a risen Lord. What can we enjoy because of this? Just briefly. There are three fruits that we enjoin, can enjoy from the resurrection of Christ. The first one is justification. Without Christ's resurrection, there would be no justification. Well, but he died. Yeah, well, and he's still dead. So he's a dead savior, which means he's no savior. second fruit is sanctification. It's through this risen Lord that we are continually being sanctified and being made to be just like him. And third, the fruit that we tend to think on the most when we think of the resurrection is glorification. Where is your sting, O death? In the conquering of death and the resurrection of Christ, death is no more to be feared. It's been removed from us. We have that comfort. It may be a doorway, but we have no reason to fear what's on the other side of that door. Christ and all his benefits are hereby offered to you this morning. Here in this text, here in the resurrection of Christ, he freely offered himself as he did to Mary and as he did to his disciples. He's hard-hearted and hard-headed as they often were. His life, his death, his resurrection, the empty tomb itself has secured the way to the Father because he is the way, the truth, and the life. No man can come to him except through Christ. The resurrection shows that Jesus Christ is the gospel of hope to hurting people. I know I'm long. My people are used to it. My people, forgive me. You know what I mean. And maybe you're here this morning and you have absolutely no idea what this empty tomb represents and when you see it, you don't care. I make no assumptions standing in the pulpit about anybody 
Maybe you've been in this church for 15 years, 10 years, 5 years. You've been an active member. Maybe you play the piano. Maybe you sing. Maybe you run the soundboard. Maybe you do other things. Maybe you're active in outreach programs. Have you met the risen Lord? Have you been relieved of the thing that most troubles you, your sin and misery? If you have not seen him, if you have not come face to face with him, and my friends, I would encourage you, I would plead with you. There may not be another Easter for you. You must behold not just the risen, not just the empty tomb, but the one who came out of it. He is good and kind. He's personally caring. He cares for individuals. He cares for his church. He'll care for you because he is good. The Apostle Paul tells us plainly that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It is simple faith in the risen Lord of glory. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scriptures say plainly, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Do you believe? Do you see the risen Lord, the Lord of glory? Amen. Our Father, we thank you for the glorious resurrection and all that it communicates to hurting and struggling people. We thank you that it is a triumphant amen on the words of Christ when he said it is finished. It is there that you received his sacrifice for us. And it's through that then, therefore, that we have union and communion with you. No longer troubled, but only hopeful that we will see him ourselves someday. Even today, Lord, we would pray, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen.